Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we are joined today by a very special guest. She's a writer, teacher, and co-host of The Losers Club, Mel Castle. Welcome Thank to the you. Pile. Thank you so much for having me on. Yay. Fun fact. Welcome, welcome. Oh, we're so Fun excited. fact, Laura used to be my boss. <laughs> stop. You, really? You gotta stop telling people that. For, <laughs> for a very brief window of time, I was Mel's manager at a company that shall not be named. Hopefully, uh, I wasn't too awful of a manager. Well, you were incredible. Think, That's why... That's why I tell people that it happened. It's a positive point on my timeline. Good. good. Yeah, I guess if it was negative, she would tell people like after you'd walked away. Yeah, or like she used to be my real bitch of a boss. (laughs) (laughs) A real ball buster that Laura understands. That's Laura. Battle axe. (laughs) For the record, I've I've been a boss before. I'm a terrible boss. Oh, really? I'm really bad at being, I'm good at being the second in command boss, Mm. terrible at being the boss boss. I would probably be very good as a boss for the people that I'm bossing, but probably terrible for the people that I'm like answering to, Mm -hmm. because I would just be like, yeah, okay, sure. You got to manage up, Jen. (laughs) Yeah. I know. (laughs) That's 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 true. I'm very good at managing up, because, you know. 
daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back to the pod. Yes, that's that's the, right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> anyway. That is, that's June's focus will be daddy issues. That's right. Yeah. So this is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the stuff that's, this is the technical definition, um, the stuff that's supposed to scare us but actually makes us feel good or at least makes us feel better. It's the horror movies we go to when we want to escape from the world or go on an emotional ride with kind of a known ending. Just the horror movies that make us feel safe, even though they're supposed to scare us, which I think is fascinating. Um, And today we are watching The Hitcher from 1986, starring Rudger Hauer and C. Thomas Howell. And I'm so excited to talk about this movie. So before we get into our discussion, uh, we're going to read a brief synopsis of the plot in case you haven't seen this or it's been a while. Alrighty, so gonna launch into this thing. Jim Halsey, an affable young man played by C. Thomas Howell, is driving through Texas at night in a rainstorm on his way to deliver a rental car from Chicago to California. After dozing off behind the wheel, Jim picks up a mysterious hitchhiker, a perpetually damp Rutger Hauer, <laughs> to stay awake and avert tragedy. Almost immediately, he learns why his mother told him to never pick up hitchhikers as his new passenger, John Ryder, rapidly escalates from creepy to murderous. Ryder threatens to cut Jim's face if Jim doesn't say the words, I want to die. Refusing to do so, Jim kicks him out of the car, saves the day, and drives off into the sunrise. Hooray! Yay! It's all over. (laughs) Goodbye. But not so fast. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I added so much emphasis to that. Um, Later that morning, Jim passes a family in a station wagon, only to see the hitcher in the back seat with the kids. He tries to stop them, but no dice. Later, he comes across the station wagon, now stationary, dripping with blood and filled with the family's dead bodies. (sighs) This begins a cat and mouse game as the hitcher stalks Jim on the road, attempting to run him down in a truck he steals from another of his victims. Along the way, Jim meets a waitress named Nash, played by a young and moody Jennifer Jason Lee, who becomes ensnared in the deadly chase. <laughs> I'm going a uh, film trailer voice for a second here, I don't, nice. except I don't have the <laughs> register for it. Okay, moving on. The hitcher, the, the hitcher somehow manages to frame Jim for the murders, prompting a gaggle of incompetent good old boy cops to arrest the innocent young man. In true Terminator fashion, Jim wakes up in his cell to find that the hitcher has taken out the entire police station. As backup arrives, Jim escapes into the desert, knowing he will be the prime suspect. Now Jim must not only evade the omnipresent hitcher, but also tons of terrible Texas cops. Yeehaw! (laughs) Yeehaw indeed. Nash and Jim get to a truck stop motel to rest and plan their next move. While Jim is in the shower, the hitcher kidnaps Nash and ties her between two trucks. In an about face, the cops are now led by Captain Estridge, played by a young and, according to Jen, dreamy Jeffrey DeMunn. <laughs> so dreamy in this movie. <laughs> that was the most he, shocking part. Like, he looks Whoa. like a young Robert De Niro. He does, mm-hmm. a bit. I can see that. So he, yeah. he uh, we'll talk later about Armin Shimmerman and how hot he is. Um, mm. he, <laughs> Captain Estridge asks Jim to negotiate with the hitcher to save Nash from being ripped apart. The hitcher is displeased and releases the clutch, killing Nash, but getting immediately arrested thereafter. At the station, Jim confronts the hitcher, who will reveal no personal information about himself. While the hitcher is being transferred, Jim hijacks Estridge's car and chases the hitcher down. True to his gut instinct, Jim finds that the hitcher has super criminal magic powers and has somehow managed to kill (laughs) everyone in his bus. 
The two have a desert showdown, and Jim finally kills the mysterious stranger. He celebrates with a manly cigarette as the sun sets. Oh, it's so manly. <laughs> it kind of is like an anime ending, you it's know, great. like with the like, mm. you know, the song and the sunset and the cigarette. Yeah, I don't know. I have the DVD here, and I just want to note that on the back, after the synopsis, they have this little section called Terror Alert, and it says... <laughs> The Hitcher is a stretch for actress Jennifer Jason Lee, especially when she's tied between two vehicles heading in opposite wow. direction. <laughs> oh, my wow. God. Terror oh, alert. Terror, uh, terror. I thought you were going to say when she tries to have a Southern accent. Wow. I do like cheesy. the cover of the DVD and the poster. Mm. It looks a lot like a Christopher Pike book cover, and I can't think of which one, but I'm like, my God, like that's a Christopher Pike book. And now I just want to read... All the old young adult horror novels I read back in the 80s. I was going to say. Teen Hitcher. Yeah, it could be like a Fear Street cover too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tried to read a Fear Street recently and it's for teenagers <laughs> in the 90s. It's for young people. <laughs> but man, I loved those books back in, back when I was age appropriate for them. Hey, and you know what? If you still love them, that's fantastic. You read what you want. Is it? Um, <laughs> Really? Uh, I mean, I don't want to read shame anybody. Yeah, I'm not, you know? I'm not gonna. Um, I'm not gonna fear fear street shame. <laughs> That's true because I love fear street. So now let's do a feelings check, um, and this is where we can kind of unpack the experience of watching this movie and identify any feelings we have when we watch it. So let's go around and share our first experiences with the Hitcher and how we feel when we watched it. And Mel, you chose this movie, and I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on I it. I did. I. Maybe should have apologized just because I know that it's probably not a very comforting film for people who, unlike me, like don't watch it all the time. <laughs> I I watched it for the first time um, with my father as a preteen. Probably he was my like gateway to to most horror, and I I remember being thrilled in so many ways. I was super thrilled at how brazenly and strangely it, it starts. I I just love when. Rutger gets in the car, or Ryder, the character's name, gets in the car and says, admits to having killed the man in the car that they've just passed and in graphic <laughs> detail, and then says in this, in this exasperated way, like he's a factory drone, he goes, and I'm going to do the same to you. <laughs> and <laughs> mm-hmm. and he, he doesn't have a mask. There's no deception going on. Like The movie is just already out the gate at 65 miles an hour. And if you're expecting a traditional slasher, I think that's the first example of it subverting your expectations. And it just continues to do so. I thought that every point where it turned, um, I just didn't know how they were going to get out of the challenge they had proposed to themselves in the movie. The cops show up super early. There's, there's just a lot of, a lot of roadblocks in the way of the plot <laughs> um, that would confound, mm. I think, a less smart or dedicated horror film. So... That's one reason I love it. I think the acting is great. I think everyone in Mm -hmm. it is so good. It moves like no other horror film or slasher that at least I had seen at the time. Like It reminds me a little bit of Scorsese's After Hours in that it just sort of keeps undoing anything that would help this poor man. And Mm -hmm. you begin to feel just that there is no hope um, for him. <laughs> but okay, so the reason that I chose it for comfort horror is that something about it, even when I saw it the first time, captivated me in a way that was deeper than, than this like propulsiveness I'm talking about. And I couldn't really put my finger on it back then. 
But I, I do think it's because it's this, it's this cat and mouse game, as the synopsis um, put it, between two adult men, neither of whom have serious attachments to friends or lovers. And it, it felt as though my brain had been freed from the constant exercise of seeing blatant misogyny on screen and, and, set it, and, then, mm. and then doing the work of setting that misogyny aside so I could enjoy the other parts of the film. So like, it was actually a relaxing break for my brain um it and it Mm -hmm. gave me that sort of reprieve from traditional man-on-woman violence and horror and having that break Mm -hmm. was comforting and at the same time it it activated my thinking about gender and horror in a new way which will which we'll get into later um but that is one reason why I find it very comforting I find it this sort of like sit back and relax version of of a slasher (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. you don't have to do like the Mm -hmm. mental work you know it's like I never changed my clocks back. <laughs> and so like for half the year, I'm like mentally calculating like what time it is, you know, and it's <laughs> nice to just not do that. You know, that's interesting. Uh, Mike, what about you? So I was yesterday days old when I saw this movie complete <laughs> for the first time. It's one of those things where I had seen like that scene at the end. Like I remember that pretty vividly as a kid catching that on HBO. And this is one of those movies that was always on HBO growing up, but I would never would really get a chance to sit down and really watch it. When you say and that scene, it, are, you, are you talking about Jennifer Jason Lee? Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where it was always one of those movies, like, I'll get around to it. You know, it was never at the top of the list for me in terms of like, oh, these are must-sees for me. So I think what I'm really interested in in this, because I just don't have an attachment to it, and I thought it had like a, a crackerjack of a first act. Like like Mel just said, totally agree. Like it comes right out of the gate swinging. Uh, and Rutger Hauer, like every second he is on screen, he is absolutely electric. Mm-hmm. Um, like absolutely just brilliant to watch and so menacing and charismatic. And I think that the last act is fantastic. I had a lot of trouble kind of like holding my attention during the middle section. It is a lot of the ridiculous success of the 1980s in in some really good ways. Um, but I just kind of found myself, my attention kind of wandering a bit after that first act and then kind of like snapping back into place for the last third of it. The note I made here is like the gay panic in this movie is off the chart. Like it is. Oh, we gonna, um, we gonna have words. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. That's fine. Like, like, um, it's very much like you have, I, I think there's like this attraction between Howard and C. Thomas Russell. And I think it's portrayed in a really odd way. And I think also you have like these, like I'm thinking of in particular, the um, construction worker who's like, all right, sweethearts get moving. And like the look of like disdain and scorn um, on that. And also like all the cops in this movie. I think what I'm most interested in in this episode is really, I know, like, Jen, you're a fan of it. Laura, you mentioned how much you really enjoyed watching it. And, like, Mel, obviously, like, you have a lot to say on it. So I'm, like, actually really interested in taking, like, a backseat in this episode. Whoa. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, and just, like, really, like, learning about this movie from some different perspectives and being like, huh, didn't really consider that. That's actually really cool. So this won't be my Mandy episode. <laughs> oh my god! I really, when we're not recording anymore, I want to, I want to trade Mandy thoughts. I have a lot of Mandy thoughts too. Okay. <laughs> uh oh. 
I, I, I said this on Twitter this week. On, on my tombstone, there will be two two things. It will say, avenge me. And it will say, fuck the Cheddar Goblin. That's pretty much. Um, <laughs> the Cheddar Goblin is you know, They the say that, that, you know, uh, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Mm-hmm. So mm. you're, yeah. you're giving the I Cheddar Goblin a lot super. of space in your brain. <laughs> That's true. I, he's, yeah, he's giving him power. You're giving mm-hmm. him four. You might say he's fucking you. He's living. Rent- I will admit, he is living rent free in my head. Mm. Absolutely, I have, I have a lot of issues with Mandy too, but we can yeah. we can discuss but, later. But no, like I am. I, and well, I I just like I wrote down what Mel just said. Like gen- look, looking at gender and horror in a new way, and mm. like I I found like oh that's a really good point. Like being able to see these like two male pro- like this male protagonist like terrorized basically for ninety minutes is the opposite of what you usually see in a horror movie outside of like the evil dead trilogy so mm-hmm. like being able to kind of have that in a movie i'm like i'm really interested in like in learning about that perspective and kind of like taking and really like honestly like i don't have a lot to add um here or there aside from like the pithy comment here or there <laughs> but it's like not like a bad like you can i can see why someone would really champion this movie based just on rutger howard's performance alone Mm -hmm. and then reading some of the making of and behind the scenes i'm like this is a really batshit crazy (laughs) dude who wrote this script who wrote like a literally 200 page script to turn in that was like ultra violent Mm -hmm. and then it sounds so bad Uh uh-huh yeah and have people like, yeah, that's right. Needs editing. <laughs> oh yeah, and that's what they did. They're like, well, this is a great kernel of an idea. Let's shave it down till we get to that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So how about you, Laura? <laughs> what was your thoughts? And well, I enjoyed it immensely. I also had not seen it before the other day when I watched it. Um, I I don't know how I missed it because I love eighties thrillers. I love. I mean, for some reason it brought to mind a little not in the content but just in the pacing and the mood that it brought to me the stepfather Mm. um so i i don't know which is like one of my favorite movies i love i love a like batshit crazy 80s thriller so i had a lot of fun watching this i i did have the initial reaction of like why is this comforting because it's a very stressful (laughs) a very stressful plot but by the end i mean i really really enjoyed it like for all the reasons already stated um and rucker hauer alone just being completely bananas mel i love your I love your take on it, and I think subconsciously I was appreciating it too. I also, all as you know from previous discussions on different subjects, always appreciate like strange homoerotic tension, um, which this movie had plenty of. And I, I mean, the chemistry between C. Thomas Howell and Rutger Howard can't be understated. They, I mean, my God, like they really have on-screen chemistry, and it is so weird. And I, I, you know, I obviously do see the gay panic coming from the other characters. Um, but I think that it all weaves together in a very interesting way. And I mean, just that the pacing of the movie is unusual. It has these mini rises and falls, the roadblocks that Mel was mentioning. Um, I, I just found it, I found it super entertaining, super compelling, unusual, off, off kilter. I just enjoyed the hell out of it. And as I said uh, on Twitter, while still watching the movie because I couldn't <laughs> contain myself, um, why the hell did Rucker Hauer never play Hannibal Lecter? Mm. Why? I, I just was like, I want to replace Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Cast Rucker Hauer as Hannibal Lecter posthumously challenged. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, you know, they do all that stuff with Star Wars right. now. Yeah. You know? um, this is how CGI. we get the new season of Hannibal, maybe. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, I want I want yeah, the okay. I've got a lot of thoughts on that. The other the only other my only other thought is that the alternative title to this movie is Somebody stop me. <laughs> For that I apologize. <laughs> One critic re- referred to this movie as Duel but with a person, which is so funny to me because Duel is just like a horror movie about a truck with no per- like I don't know there's just like layers of- right. it's actually Duel that's the weird one okay actually I haven't seen Duel I need to watch it I haven't either oh yeah <laughs> apparently there's no people driving so I'm I'm intrigued um this was I had watched this a long time ago probably like probably 10 or 15 years ago because I had heard that it was so scary and it was it was back I don't know when I was in like high school or college or something. And I was like, Ooh, I got to watch the scariest movies. And I really didn't like it the first time I watched it because it scared me and it upset me so much, you know, like there's, it reminded me as I was watching, I kept thinking about Henry portrait of a serial killer because it just kind of has that really dark vibe. Um, the part with Nash's death has disturbed me for years. Like I, that's one that I, I think about, not often, but like it's one of the horror deaths that kind of haunts me, you know. Um, and I and the other thing that really bothered me is the kids in the station wagon like that, just the way that that all rolls out. And I think the reason that it upsets me so much is because we don't see it. And so your brain just creates all of this stuff. And so it really upset me. And I was like, oh, I just this movie is I just don't like this movie. And so I watched it yesterday and I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it was. I was going to Um, partly probably because I knew what was going to happen. And so that tension was gone and I knew how much I was not going to see and how much was going to be implied. Also, I saw the terrible remake um, and that movie, and that may have kind of taken a little bit of the air out of the, the movie room for me. Um, but I, there's such a dreamy quality to this movie that I really dig. Like, I think a lot of that is because of the score, because it's just very like, like he's walking through the police station and it's supposed to be this really horrific thing, but the score is just so like surreal and dreamy. And there are scenes of like extreme, action and like scariness like the part with the fire at the gas station so many car flips yes I know I literally was like oh shit on my couch like oh shit like constantly throughout this movie I I like how much Halloween 4 borrowed from the hitcher in terms of like the garage sequence the cars blowing Mm. up yeah, but it was never like it didn't ever get to Michael Bay levels of like action for me, which I really liked. Like the action felt really kind of authentic and like I was like, oh, those poor cars, like they're actually flipping, you know, as opposed to like looking super mm-hmm. CGI, you know. That that that's what I love about an eighties movie is anything you're seeing is just they just did right. that. They yeah. just filmed they it. Tossed, like they they tossed that bus down a dune and they, they blew up that <laughs> helicopter. Right. Yeah, that chopper just blew the hell up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I was also pretty into C. Thomas Howell as I was watching this. I thought he was pretty. Oh, he's so good. Pretty dreamy. He's very, very handsome. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah. Every, I mean, both him and Rucker Howard. I would be attracted to them. Yeah. Both. That's all I'm going to say <laughs> on that subject. Well, well I <laughs> doubt it, Laura. I doubt, I doubt we're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it was so interesting. I think I was looking at it like the first time I watched it, and I've talked about this before, like I was not really analyzing horror. And so I was just kind of experiencing it. And this time that kind of helps me separate sometimes when things seem to be really scary for me. And I was looking at him and watching this, understanding him as kind of a final girl. And so that was really interesting 
to me seeing like the interplay between these two male characters and it kind of made me think of the movie ravenous where there really aren't female characters so there's no like like you were saying mel there's no misogyny there because they're both they're both male but they're still like the implied like they still kind of take on roles and that was really fascinating to me um, so now let's get into the specifics. Uh, what is it that we love about the Hitcher or what do we think is affecting about it? Maybe a character, a certain scene, a theme or a mood. And Mel, you shared a little bit of a paper that you wrote about this in college. And when we were planning this episode and kind of at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned that you want to talk about gender and how it's represented here. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Just, just go just just drive I, uh, just if you're okay with that <laughs> i mean no i'm so okay with it I, I can't even show you my page of notes here it's a horror show um yeah i mean i just i also want to say that i just i fucking love rucker hauer in general mm. like i'm sure i went into this a little biased um yeah ironically enough my first exposure to him wasn't blade runner i think it was the 10th kingdom which was a oh, really? in which he <laughs> plays a fantasy huntsman um who is evil? I think it's great. My first was uh was Merlin, the NBC miniseries mm. where he plays a kind of evil king mm-hmm. of some sort. So mm-hmm. he just plays. They evil love so to well. throw him back in time and just and just see what happens. Yeah, yeah. slap some ch- slap some chainmail <laughs> on him. Some and, leather. Yeah, I... Go to town. Yeah. Well, did, didn't he play Barlow at some point from Salem's Lot? I think it was. Oh, I don't know. Did he? I think it was in the TNT um miniseries, which is not great, but I mean Rucker Howard's in it, so it's gonna be mm. good. Yeah, I'm so pleased that like. I sort of made you all watch this for something like the first time. <laughs> it's, it's definitely part of why it's comfort horror for me too, is that it gives me that lovely feeling of iconoclast smugness when I'm like, oh, you're a horror fan. Have you seen this one? I bet it'll be different than what you think. Um, <laughs> and you were right. So You were correct. <laughs> so, okay. It's comforting to me because of how it plays with power and gender and sexuality so casually as though these concepts are indeed things that you can pick up and move around on the grand game board of life. Um, I think one of the mantras that I always repeat to myself personally as, as a reminder of um, not to get too stressed about identity things from day to day is just play over permanence. And I feel like this movie mm-hmm. embodies that to me. That is not a mantra that I want to project onto others. I think other people might really delight in, in permanence and find security in that. But mm. I find a lot of lot of confidence and security in the idea of play. Um, so I do want, I like really do want to get into the weeds of, yeah, some critics called this movie homophobic, said it was a gay panic um, right as the AIDS crisis was also going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Ebert said it was nihilistic homoeroticism, which I, I really can't literally argue that, with that claim. Um, yeah. And I also, that may I don't know, that that makes me feel some kind of way and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't want to talk about it yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> um, but I guess I guess my argument is that what matters to this movie is not gay versus straight, man versus woman, or even man versus man. That that the part where the guy at the um, detour says, you know, get going, sweethearts, and kind of rolls his eyes, is a willful misinterpretation of what's happening. It's a mask over what what the real deal is here. And that is that gender and sex are both tools used to gain, hold and trade power and ultimately death, which I think is the ultimate incarnation of power to Rutger Hauer's character. 
So gender and sex are like the cars and guns that he's switching out throughout the movie's runtime. They're things that he employs to meet his ends. And he wants to both kill and die for reasons that aren't explained and don't, don't really need to be explained. Because mm-hmm. I don't think he's meant to be a real person. He's, he's some kind of itinerant, deadly force uh, looking for its opposite. Or at least for a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And his quest for that challenge, for me, plays with and takes the form of the final girl narrative. It just so happens that the challenger he encounters is a boy. And that boy must become the final girl. Um, and the movie and writer essentially have to first like feminize Halsey, like give all these aesthetics that are associated with femininity to him and then teach him how to become more masculine and teach him to fill into that slot of of final girl and how to be in a horror film basically. Mm-hmm. And that causes so many delightful moments for me of of gender ambiguity and play. The final girl is already a sort of experiment in gender fluidity and ambiguity and that mm-hmm. like it's a woman who's taking on a lot of masculine quote-unquote traits things that we associate with masculinity and Mm -hmm. this is to me muddying those waters further and and that's like mud that I just want to splash around in (laughs) I I, I really want to get into that I'll get into I do think like you know the 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 counter argument that could be posed is like isn't this still essentialist and I'll and I'll get into like a a defense of my argument later Um, (laughs) but I do just kind of like want to talk a little bit about how we see Jim as the final girl and how the movie, like even just look at the cover. Like, you know that in the meeting for this cover, they were like, well, how do we can't show a man being terrorized. So what we're going to do is put scared wide eyes in a rear view mirror and then have like the, the silhouette of the hitcher on the road ahead. Mm-hmm. And it told, if you saw this cover, you would just think like, that's probably a woman driving. Um, so, mm-hmm. like, from the outset, you're you're primed for the traditional presentation of a final girl, or at least from someone who's going to be stalked and killed by a very powerful dude. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in her analysis of the final girl, Clover points out that the final girl is a character who is chased, cornered, wounded, whom we see scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. She's abject terror personified. She's inevitably female. And I, besides that last bit, I can't think of a more accurate description of like what Mm -hmm. Jim goes through in this movie. We see him sobbing. We see him like at at the end of his tether. Mm -hmm. And we also see him undressed and he's the only character that we ever see shirtless. We see him shirtless three times. The Mm -hmm. the gaze of the movie Mm -hmm. is very much on Jim. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a whole list of like what, (laughs) how he takes on the characteristics of a, of a final girl. And I I especially love the idea of the gaze and, and looking, especially because Ryder is totally able to look at and for him at all times. He knows where he's going to be. And Jim can't even see the severed finger in his French fries, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's mm-hmm. totally incapable of mastering the gaze until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's listening to him. He's banging on doors being like, help, help. There's a killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yes. um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, someone else weigh in. I've talked for too long. <laughs> well, I just have to say anytime anybody that's not me mentions Carol Clover, I think an angel gets their wings somewhere because I <laughs> fucking love talking about final girls and men, women and chainsaws. And it's just totally my jam. And I think that's part of why I really dug this movie so much more this time. Um, but I think you're right. And that's what I think is so fascinating about final girls is it's kind of an examination of what it means to be strong and what it means to be strong as a woman or a girl and like 
like gaining the phallus by the stabbing weapon when they when you finally stab the killer and then dropping it reverting back to your female form because being a woman that's strong is too scary for everybody else so we gotta like re-feminize her again and I think it's so fascinating to see it here because it's it's deconstructing kind of what we assume this male character is and really I I love the way you said it like he has to relearn the right way to be masculine which is what it seems like Gregor Hauer is really trying to do here and I was watching this and I kept thinking what does he fucking want like what does he (laughs) want him to do especially like when he's about to kill Nash and I read an article about it that I'll link but it I was like, what's what's the goal for him? What is going to make him happy? You know, and that was really fascinating to me, too. I'm curious what that article has to say about Nash and and what what was his goal with Nash? And like, I'm curious about how Nash plays into this, because, you know, she kind of comes in as a sort of potentially romantic link Mm -hmm. to to Halsey and what that does to this dynamic. And it's just like, obviously, you know, she's literally torn apart, you know, like mm-hmm. the, you are not, he he is not allowed <laughs> to have this kind of connection, to have any connection that separates him from, from Ryder mm-hmm. and to the point where he literally tears her into using the truck with, which as like a, as a symbol for this film uh, being about the road and hitchhiking and as a symbol for masculinity is like pretty on the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, I think in that moment, and I sort of only noticed this, this time, like I've seen this movie so many times, but when they're in the cab of that truck together with Nash tied between them, like Ryder is, is jealous. He's jealous that he's that, super jealous. That saving Nash's life would be more important to Jim than the opportunity to kill him, mm-hmm. which should be, right. which should be the most important thing to Jim. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like the, from the moment that he got into Jim's car and he told him and they had that little interplay with the switchblade and like, I say that you want to die. And he says, I, you know, I think, I think it's during that exchange that, you know, Jim says, well, what do you, what do you want? And he's like, I want, I want you to stop me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's almost like he, he implants or he infects him with this, this, you know, this desire to, you know, they, they kind of become linked in this dance that he is not going to fucking escape from until one of them is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, and it feels very, very uh, romantic in a manipulative and like sort of incubus succubus kind of way, you know, to me, it, it really reminds me not to bring it back to Hannibal, but like the Hannibal <laughs> oh, and bring Will it dynamic. Back, in the, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, you know what baby, baby got back. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what that means, uh, but you know, it really, I mean, that, that dynamic of like being so singularly obsessively focused on someone and, and seeking death as, as, and sex as interrelated mm-hmm. and as a power dynamic, like you were saying, Molly, I think that is completely correct. And I think that's what sort of, if you will, seduced me about this movie and, and elevated it above just a thriller is I was so immediately entranced by that, that dynamic between them and by how intensely Rucker Hauer kind of forces it onto the screen with this sheer force of charisma and presence. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you kind of like know, oh, you're, you know, he's in the passenger seat, but you're in his fuck, you're on his fucking carnival ride. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and like from that moment again, the the pacing, everything leads you to that inevitability. And yeah, I'm just like I'm super into this analysis of Me it. Too. I, I think it's really really fascinating. And well, I want to hear I want to hear your guys thoughts on Nash because you're right, she does sort of just complicate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. almost like. 
it's almost like, again, like if we look at this movie as a sort of meta commentary on horror tropes, they were like, well, we have to put a girl in there, but we already have exactly. a final girl. <laughs> right. So like, what's going to happen? What a, yeah. What do we um, do? What do we do with this? Right. And I think yeah, that yeah, the yeah. answer is they like make her come off kind of gay. Like, <laughs> like if you look at Nash, I mean, she OK, she shows up in a formless, like puffy vest. She's always like fully clothed, head to toe, like mm-hmm. nothing showing. Um, she's better than Jim at like taking charge of situations, at least initially. She's got mm-hmm. the gun. Um yeah. and they are so uninterested in each other, it's like funny to me. Mm-hmm. Like, like she like pretends him- to be asleep at one point when he's trying to talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know, I know. <laughs> there's that one moment where he stro- where he strokes her face after they've both admitted they're afraid, and then there's just a quick cut to them lying, not touching, like so platonically I know. on this bed, both fully clothed, like nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. they're both so uninterested in in sex and each other that it's it's actually quite funny to me. Even when mm-hmm. he like drags her into that bus bathroom and there sh- there should be like something flying right. between them yeah um, right and, and it's it's I, I don't know if all the screen the, the chemistry was just taken up by by Howard and and Howard and Howell attorneys at law <laughs> I don't but um yeah yeah and, and it's just kind of like I think to your point Mel it felt very much like we have to put a girl character in here and we we got to do something with that so here she is oh this was my thought is why does she why, I, mean, I was curious in my own, just, you know, again, I feel like it was so, so to some extent just to move the plot along, but why does she step up and put herself in the crosshairs of all of this for this guy that she doesn't even seem to be that attached to that strolled into her diner? Is it just purely because she believes him and she wouldn't be able to live with herself if she didn't do something? Is it purely because that cop was like, spit on my wrist? Oh, and, I love that uh, part. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Well, she just she just couldn't take, police brutality yeah. well, I, think, I mean it's just, they, like, they all know each other right like it, mm-hmm. and she right. has that line where she's like i can't believe you were gonna do what you were about to do and then when the truth comes down i'll be just fine which is really sad because she will not be fine no um, the opposite but I, I i think it's that they all know each other they're in this small town and she's suddenly become aware of how awful <laughs> her friends can be mm-hmm. um to a suspect that yeah she has a gut feeling is not is not the real murderer and she was about to just see him get shot in cold blood by a police officer yeah. mm-hmm. and i do think there's also the like you know she talked about wanting to maybe go to california one day mm-hmm. and she just see you know she's kind of swept along in the momentum of this of this story that's happening as like you know because it is it sort of happens in this liminal space this crossroads of america which is you know the the, the typical setting for a road movie mm-hmm. or something like that and you just you feel you know she is the archetype of like the waitress with big dreams that wants to get out of, out of town and so i guess maybe on, on some level she just gets she decides that this is going to happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the only thing that made me really go, hmm. Like, I just didn't totally buy it as something that somebody would do. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, but I, you know, obviously it moves the plot along and it gives you a lot of interesting content. But Mike, thoughts, yeah. thoughts on anything we've said? Um, <laughs> not a lot. Uh, honestly, I think that's a really, I, 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 two things I wrote down here in my notes, like, this is like this song Lola by the Kinks kind of come to life with Rucker Hauer dragging C. Thomas Howell along to manhood. Like, come here, little boy. We're going to make you a man. Because you just see, like, the beginning of this movie, like, his first line is, like, references mm-hmm. his mother. Like, my mom said never pick up anyone like this before. You know, and he just seems like such a gosh darn little kid. 
in the beginning. And then like by the end of the movie, he's like, see Thomas Howell, mm-hmm. like action. The manly star. cigarette. Um, you know, like a, like super hardened, like, and I, and the, the contrasting scenes of the first time he pulls a gun on the cops, which by the way, like the cops in this movie get disarmed very easily. <laughs> yeah. Um, very easily. So he's holding a gun to the two cops' heads, but they're able to like kind of talk him down from it. Where it happens again later on, and he's like more self-assured, more steeled. Like he's kind of like been through the ringer at that. I point. totally, I totally agree. And if you talk about wielding guns as wielding masculinity, and like of course the metaphor for mm-hmm. like a phallus, especially when they're pointing them at each other under a diner table, mm-hmm. and Rucker yeah. Hauer is like, "Your gun is empty," mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and sticking your finger in the end of it. <laughs> yeah. I think the, you know, we talk a lot about final girls and horror heroines because that's such, it's probably the most dominant trope in all of horror at this point, at least horror of like the past 40 years. And I think it's because of my other show and how we're covering like franchises over and over and how you see so many final girls come and go, especially after covering uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street for the past few months. I have this kind of new appreciation for the sort of loss that the final girl character goes through because what happens in all of these movies, and it's a little bit different here because he, to see Thomas Howell's kind of a loner is you have this person that has a lot to live for. Like you see them with their friends, you see them mm. happy, you see them with their future planned out. And yes, by the end of the movie, they survive, but there's nothing left. Like everything has been stripped away from them. Their friend group is gone. Their, f- their future has been stripped away. They have all this trauma that they're going to have to work through for who knows how many years and who knows if they're going to be equipped to deal with it. I-, I think often of like Sally at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, great, you survived. But w- what does that mm-hmm. really mean? Um, like there's no coming back from that at the end of, of that movie. I think of like Alice in Elm Street 4 and 5 who's seen everyone taken away from her twice um like this group of like incredible friends her brother this great support network that she has that's been built around her is like completely stripped away from the end of the movie but she's rebuilt as a stronger character and then in the next movie it's by and large done again although one friend survives and her dad survives and they literally walk into the sunset and i think i'm getting a new appreciation for the final girl trope rewatching a lot of 90 slashers where you're seeing more characters survive. Like at the end of the movie, like you look at Scream and you have a core of like three characters that have survived mm-hmm. four times now, which that's not happening in an 80s movie. Uh, Urban Legend, you look at friend groups that are surviving at this point, Lori's family being intact at the end of Halloween 2018. Um, I just wish there was like another way to do horror that just wasn't like the same let's strip everything down to the bone again and again and we're rooting for survival but then the credits roll and there's never any sort of interrogation of what Mm -hmm. happens next and i think maybe that's partly because of my role as a therapist where i get to pick help people pick Mm -hmm. up those pieces years later oh my god i would love a movie like a sequel where the final girl goes to therapy And there's, um, well, there's Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, where you have Margot Kidder Lars as the um, psychiatrist. <laughs> I love, I, I'll be, I hate his first take on it, 
I have a soft spot for this. I absolutely Um, hated it when I saw it in theaters, but I've heard the director's cut kind of adds a lot more to it. And I shouldn't watch it. I guess thinking on, on King stuff, both misery and Gerald's game have, they do wrestle Mm -hmm. sort of with an aftermath in a, Mm -hmm. in a, in a more thorough Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. And I know Gerald's game gets a lot of shit for that, but that's one of the things that I love about that book is that it, it feels like it closes the door or it like puts a book into it, you Mm -hmm. know? It's yeah. It's more the execution of that ending that I struggle with, but I like that that it's yeah. there. I like right. it a lot more than if it wasn't there. And it wasn't there some movie we were talking about on a recent episode where it starts at the end of a final girl's, you know. Yeah, I think it's Last Man Standing. Um, the Tim Allen. I think that's the name of it. <laughs> no, it's a, I think you reference that same. It's a young woman who it starts at the end mm. of the slasher movie and then it picks mm-hmm. up like later on. And she starts hallucinating that he's mm. back. I was just um, curious to see like, that, and I couldn't remember yeah. what it was called. It's um, super relevant. Also, Dr. Sleep. Um, oh, love when you look at Dr. Danny Sleep. years later, I've only read the book, and I really enjoyed I think I enjoyed the book a lot more than most people did. The movie um, blew me the fuck away. No. Like, I did not expect it to. I was going into that prime to hate it. Mm-hmm. So Loved it. good. I'm a sucker for Dr. Sleep and Mike Flanagan, so that was like... Just One like day, I just, Mike Flanagan just can't end a movie to save his life, and I, I really <laughs> want him to. I'm rooting for him so hard. Mike, he's got a little of the schmaltz in him. You know? <laughs> he does. He just saccharine <laughs> yeah. his core, like he can't resist. Oh mm-hmm. no, I know. One thing you said, Mike, that that I that I wanted to kind of acknowledge because I think it's really interesting is that like in all these other slasher movies, you do get to see elements of the normal or like elements of domesticity like people babysitting mm-hmm. or people having fun at camp or people just kind of relaxing in their homes for a second so you do know what's being taken away from them and mm-hmm. and one reason why this one is just so like both literally and figuratively desolate is that we we never have a moment of familiarity with anything because right. jim is just mm-hmm. going from outpost to outpost a lot of them are just abandoned um mm-hmm. even when he does show up against a community it's a community that shuns him immediately um Mm -hmm. and we have no sense of a home for him we have no sense of anything that is shelter or or at all kind of stable because he's on this giant road trip Mm -hmm. um which i also i just like how non-traditional that is even though it does make it harder to watch Yeah. yeah Well, and I think that makes it kind of not necessarily easier, but more interesting to look at them as not necessarily like characters, but character types, you yeah. know, and that's where you can kind of see the them because John Ryder, like that's probably not even really his name. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I called on, him the hitcher. Ryder. I, exactly. <laughs> right. A little on the nose. It's Ryder with yeah. a Y though. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And it's really fascinating because we really don't know much about Nash either. Like nobody in this movie is really you're right you said it like there's no familiarity and it's in transit we're constantly in transit in this movie which is really soothing to me a lot of times when I myself am in transit because I don't have to connect to either home or the destination and I can kind of just be free like I was watching him driving and I was like oh that would be really nice right <laughs> now I'd like to go on a road mm-hmm. trip oh, fuck I would love to I've always wanted to go on a great American road trip even after watching this movie immediately after watching this right. movie yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that, you know, some movies suffer because they'll give 
too much to a single character or a single subset of characters while you know giving short shrift and underdeveloping other characters not giving them backstories this movie felt very confident in its you know in its intention to just not fuck around with any of mm-hmm. that and it is it is a conceptual gesture because it is happening it is a road movie and we're just like you just said everything is in transit mm-hmm. um and i think that that makes it feel really powerful and weird and like you said mel non-traditional and it just i found it very very compelling almost in, like hypnotic in a way i was just along for the ride yeah <laughs> <laughs> so hey. to speak I'm sorry, there's no, way, yeah. no way to not make these puns that wasn't even intended as a joke you know any, it's <laughs> the hitcher's in your head i think um oh he's oh he's he's hitched a ride <laughs> all right he's got his hooks in me anyway I don't. one of my favorite one of my other favorite parts of this movie is that you get hints of a sort of metaphysical supernatural bond between the two of them and also maybe just in rucker howard's abilities like how the fuck does he get ahead of him every time Uh how does he shoot down a helicopter with what looks like a very big pistol like i don't know Mm -hmm. but i love i love that we actually get a little bit of proof positive at the very end when he's being interrogated and jim is behind the two-way mirror and the, Mm. the guy who looks like a mouse is like what is your name? What is your name to, to John Ryder <laughs> and Jim Armin Shimmerman <laughs> and Jim on the other side of the mirror says he whispers like John Ryder and Ryder look like he hears him like he knows that Jim is there and it's his heart here. It's him. so good. It's like, oh, it's like everything I wanted yeah. out of that moment. I know exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It reminded me of that last moment in high tension when she reaches out when she can feel her friend through the glass like and I know a lot of people hate the twist of high tension with, you know, good reason. It's kind of ridiculous. But that <laughs> last moment is, like, so chilling to me. So, yeah, I, I do do dig a good, like, superhuman hearing through a two-way mirror. <laughs> that part, it's so that specific, part was, but it's so good. Right. Mm, but it, when I'm it, sure it was TV tropes really as well. a page. Right. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like when there's a good library montage with some microfiche in there. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love a microfiche, yeah. I do too. Um, I, I, I think it's so interesting that like the movie, it's almost like defiantly like subverting your expectations. Like, oh, you think they're going to hook up? No, uh fuck you. We're going to kill her, you know? Mm-hmm. Because, oh gosh, I had a thought run with it i mean it keeps doing like i like the cops taking him in so early you're like well how the fuck is yeah. this gonna like play mm, out yeah there's just so many and i love how the camera work corresponds with it like the scares in this movie are all scares by implication right he lifts the mm-hmm. finger and like that's gross and scary but the implication is that like rucker Hauer is somewhere in the diner when he right. when he leans against the prison bars and the door opens i love that moment mm-hmm. it's like so eerie and I love it every is. time he just comes out of the background when he's like on the radio with Estridge <laughs> for the first time. And he's like, okay, I'm going to turn myself in. I'm putting my trust in you, Captain. And you just see this like barreling black <laughs> truck come <laughs> over his shoulder. And you're like, fuck. You're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but it never, like it keeps going, you know? And it's like, oh, you think you're safe now? Fuck you. You're not. And I like one of my big pet peeves in movies is when the character has to spend most of the runtime convincing everyone else that this thing is real you know it's like okay i love it when everyone sees the ghost okay we acknowledge Mm -hmm. it okay let's just move the story forward and this one like five minutes in like we know he's a killer we know like he there's really no motive he's not gonna have one like it's not we're gonna find out that like his mom secretly like (laughs) tore his family apart i don't think this man has a mother (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't think so either. And I think there's a reading. This was the thought. Um, I think like, just because I am like a child of the movies that have come before me, like I was expecting halfway through, I was like, oh, is it going to be that the Hitcher is not real? Um, and I'm so glad that they did not do that as well, because I think then you lose so much of the interplay between the characters. And I love how suddenly everybody just believes him and now he's on the cop's side when like all of Texas state troopers had been hunting this man down and like ready to murder him and it just it was such a funny about face and I think if there's one thing that I I kind of um, fault the movie for is that some of the decisions that he makes don't always they seem a little extreme Mm -hmm. you know like oh you're gonna steal the cop's gun now oh you're stealing the cop's gun again like he is very very action oriented in a lot of ways that I don't know if I would actually be which is interesting because we're in the middle of feminizing him Mm -hmm. you know and then he keeps like taking these really extreme steps well, yeah, and I, I, I also had the same reaction to it where I was like, whoa, pump the brakes. Uh-huh. And another, another pun. Another pun. Uh, God, I don't even want to do I don't want to do it. keep on trucking, Laura. Uh, uh, I, can't, I can't stop. Keep on trucking it. Oh, man. But the point that I was driving at, no. It's like I can't stop the words from coming out of my mouth. Uh, it's that... It's almost like he is under a spell and has to make these things happen. And you can almost see him doing things against his own will in a way. And at least, again, I don't think that's literally even necessarily what they intended, but that is definitely the way it feels emotionally watching it is that like I sort of started to forgive these leaps in in logic where I was like, I wouldn't like even Nash deciding to go along with it. It's like she gets pulled into this orbit Mm -hmm. and she's, but she's an exoplanet and the exoplanet ends up getting destroyed by the gravitational pull. I'm again, extending this. Yeah, Let's go to space. No, but I think that's so like, yeah, it's like they have to abide by the tropes, right? Like they are being Mm -hmm. driven by, Mm -hmm. by certain things. One is Rutger and the other is just how these movies work. And that is another element of just why it's so interesting to me, because I don't think the movie itself is very aware that it's doing it. Yeah. Um, But, but we, we, get to be right looking at eric red's body of work like this is not a person that was really thinking about these things i think that you know he's just wanted to develop this like really cool action horror slasher thriller you know like when and i think like his script is filled with like you know and then he eats an eyeball you know like it was like really (laughs) right i mean it is the fact that it got i think he like described it when he sent in his pitch like this is the most grotesque like fucked up crazy movie ever made and it's gonna like scare you into your chair you won't be able to move and like a couple executives are like well let's hear what the guy has to say you know like <laughs> so i think you're that, speaking my language buddy yeah i think they were able to like kind of like peel back a lot of the bad ideas in the original yeah. script and come up with something that is very streamlined you know yeah even though it does have some of that excess and, and look God love the 80s for, like, allowing this, like, you know what this slasher movie needs right now is a fucking helicopter mm-hmm, chase mm-hmm. right now. You know, well, yes, it does. Yeah. it does. It does. You know? And it did. Um, and I agree with Jen yeah. that the God score is part that. of that, too. The score is great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really yeah. is. It's so like, it feels like the score, not the score that you're going to get from a movie like that, mm-hmm. which is again, another subversion. And I think for the record, I do not love Jennifer Jason Lee's southern accent in this i <laughs> kind of stick mm-hmm. on that a little bit as someone who's from the south and hear a lot of that i don't love her in this role but i really love the kind of 
reversal of the damsel in distress kind of thing because he does not save her he kind of tries but even then like he's so afraid to say but she'll die like you know part of him just wants to shoot the hitcher Mm -hmm. but I but she saves him first also and there's no like there can be men and women in movies where they are not romantically involved and I love seeing that and here's an example of it and also it's kind of what we were talking about with the invitation this is a male character really kind of struggling with his fears and like feeling afraid and when I was reading some of the the background to this movie so Eric Red got the idea as he was driving across country and Mm -hmm. I wonder if he was just kind of examining his own fears of feeling really powerless and not really having a home and if I got really onto my patriarchy soapbox I could say like that's a very feminine fear of not feeling like like feeling like you don't have the power to make any of the rules in any of the homes you live in even though you might be the keeper of the home as the female role it's still like the patriarch is making all of the rules totally. that you just make the sub rules for. Because the ho- so. the Rucker Howers home is the road. And also we mm-hmm. get the instinct in Jim to save and care for the other people that he knows are now in danger. And he can't do it. He keeps failing as a caretaker on the road. Mm-hmm. He keeps trying mm-hmm. to warn yeah. people. And it doesn't, mm-hmm. it never works. He can't save people from this like menacing man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so if he I think the article that I was reading was talking about fetishizing violence and that the goal for for Rugger Hauer when he's killing Nash is to consummate the relationship with killing. And so that's when when I look at this movie, I don't necessarily think the plot completely holds up because Rugger Howard just seems to have no logical motivations and it's really kind of hard for me he's to a, He's try a to... dom all his life. He wants to be a sub for once. That's his <laughs> right, motivation. Exactly. <laughs> he's having a he's having a switch day. Right. You know? But he's definitely he's definitely topping from the bottom though. I mean like yes, he's, he's not a brand. really subbing. So. Well, but what I think is interesting about that is it lets me it, like it almost turns into more of a met- metaphor or an analogy that I can kind of dig into, which is like my jam. So another reason that I think I liked it a lot more this time. But the article was positing that like when he meets the hitcher, he it's like the sexual awakening and the entire movie is stripping away the boundaries that are keeping him from the hitcher, which I think it's like they're destined they have they're they're each other's destiny in this movie and I think the fact that we never see them connected to anything else kind of helps that like I remember when I had a crush on one of my old boyfriends who lived in another town I always felt like there was kind of an invisible rubber band between us did he put a finger in your french fries (laughs) oh it was yeah but I saw it right away so (laughs) it was okay (laughs) which speaking of love how that scene plays out because how long is he holding this fry in front of his face and we're all like holy shit he's not gonna eat it he's gonna ah it's i i want to know what kind of french fries this place is serving where he has like this thing he the texture of a finger and it's they looked real thick cut oh those are home those are some thick thick cut steak fries at a shitty diner (laughs) yeah also isn't he covered in gasoline yeah jenna what was your what was your point about your crush before i totally derailed you ran you off the road Oh, um, just like that, that I could feel like an, a connection between us. Mm-hmm. Like the the invisible rubber band is what I thought about, and then when we broke up, it felt like that kind of severed, and we he, like I have no idea what he's doing now, and it's almost <laughs> like they have that within with each other, and so like 
Nash comes in and just kind of bounces off of it and she can't really Yeah, I mean I think when he, when he killed when he rips her in half like you guys hit the nail on the head that that is a consummation of sort of their connection that they ha- they literally have to undo this girl in order to consummate their <laughs> their love. But I I'm interested mm-hmm. in the question. I mean, I have my own opinion, but it that one reading of this film is that Ryder is corrupting Jim, that Ryder is teaching Jim to be a killer, that Ryder is mm-hmm. the way that he mans Jim is is to teach him that violence is okay, that you should take what you want. Um so has mm-hmm. he become Ryder at the end or has he defeated Ryder at the end? Um mm-hmm. I I don't like that reading. Like I prefer to view it as a movie about power and who wields it. Um mm-hmm. and, and having that power tied to sexuality but not necessarily a character's gender mm-hmm. is is really interesting to me and I think by the end I do get a sense of of sort of power the power that Jim wields being the if you were looking at it from a Stephen King lens like the sort of you know brighter side of, of the <laughs> power as opposed mm-hmm. to the more devilish side of the power yeah. that Rucker Hauer wields. But I don't know. Other people may watch it and just get that that sensation that Mike was talking about, that like, what what have we learned here? We've just destroyed a man's life. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, but right. you've got those mirror, the bookends of the scene, because in the very first scene, he is saying, you're just going to keep driving. And he's got a weapon to the driver. And then we see Jim do that mm-hmm. twice mm-hmm. later on. And I was watching that and I was like, oh, he's, he's become the violent one now. And I wonder, like... I we don't see enough about what happens to Jim for it to feel like an indictment of that kind of transference of power. But it is really interesting. And I, I agree with you. I think I like looking at it more as power rather than like manliness, because then it kind of veers into the toxic masculinity thing for me. And, sure. And the know. other thing is that his power has nothing to do with institutions. Right. The cops can't help him. He has to be like, mm-hmm. Estridge, get out of the car. I have to handle this. Mm-hmm. We have a connection. Mm-hmm. We're basically You may be lovers. super dreamy, but still yeah, get I, out of the I car. spit in his face and he loved it. And I just need to finish things. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a there's a there's a passivity to Jim throughout the first two acts of the movie like you see when he's first confronted with by Ryder how he mm-hmm. cowers like he tried to he and he goes into an almost fetal position mm-hmm. you see him when he confronts Ryder in the 18 wheeler when uh, Nash is tied between it like how he just can't measure up to the moment and i think of oh, that i want to talk about the diner scene where with the, with the coins yeah, on the eyes yes yes it's you know, there's like something very sensuous and seductive about that scene. And there's a discomfort, like you see Jim's discomfort in that scene. And he's basically made completely subservient to Ryder in that moment. And I think like there's something like overtly sexual about that moment. Mm-hmm. And you have the flip of that later on when Jim spits in Ryder's face in the interrogation scene. And it is very much like played out like semen. Oh, totally. It's basically yeah, it's how very, I saw that. It's scene. like it's a very white and large <laughs> right. amount of spit. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> and and you see like Nash kind of playing with it in a very Jim, Jim playing. Yes, Jim. He, like uh, rubs it between his fingers. No, it's Ryder. Ryder playing with it. Oh, I'm sorry, Ryder. Yes, yes. You see Ryder playing with it. Look, I wasn't kidding when I with that Dom and Subline. Like, I actually do think that. No, that is absolutely a way to read this. I mean, I really, I think it's. I don't know again if it was intentional on the part of the writer 
writer or the of the writer or the writer but I, I it is you you can't escape it and i think it's i think it's a far more fun read than the like just does violence corrupt kind of thing you know mm-hmm. i i just it's way more fun <laughs> yeah but there's also like before uh Ryder and jim had their final confrontation like the uh robert de niro um stand-in cop basically says to him like look it's out of your hands now like the law has taken over you've done your part um but you have no more part to play in it like it's been stripped away from him Mm -hmm. it's been his agency has been taken away from him and that i think you could see is why he reacts the way he does like why he's like let me you know if i've already like taken away a gun from a few cops already might as well go for one more Mm -hmm. at this point and that's why he's like no like this is what's going to happen like i am going to tell you how this is going to play out Mm -hmm. at this point so i think that that is a real big part of it is that you know throughout the movie he's very passive and things happen to him um and he's able to like he can't get a hold of anybody nobody believes Mm -hmm. him no when he confronts nash in the greyhound restroom he's like i didn't do this you believe me right he's like well you're holding a gun to my face like sure i believe you Mm -hmm. you're holding a gun to my like what the fuck am i supposed to say Mm -hmm. right now um and it's not until this very end where he's like well now i'm going to exert my own control my own dominance my own power at that point where he's able to actually gain the upper hand totally and i also love it fits into the final girl model really nicely that at the very beginning he commits this sort of i don't know if i can characterize it as ultimately passive but this act of curiosity that goes punished right he lets a man into his Mm -hmm. car he lets Mm -hmm. this man penetrate his car and he is ultimately going to be reprimanded for that that act um Mm -hmm. but his first tipping point is to kick him out of the car that's like the the signal to Ryder that he's sort of found a a quest worthy opponent some Mm -hmm. like perhaps Perhaps this sub has a streak of, of Dom in him and I can, yeah. I, can, I can cultivate it. I love the diner scene so much. I love Ryder sitting down and just clearing his throat to get Jim's attention. And I especially uh-huh. love his face, like Ryder's face when Jim's gun is empty and he's just firing impotently. His face makes this expression that's like, that's like, oh, buddy. Like he, like he, he both is, he's really sympathetic to Jim in that moment. And he's also like, super touched that jim would kill him maybe like this is just Mm -hmm. affirmation that he's chosen the right person and he gives him the bullets right he slides the (laughs) he gives him the agency he's like here now you can now you can really fucking do it um Mm -hmm. i just love that scene Mm -hmm. so much well yeah and you were saying earlier that like he exists outside of systems and i wonder if there's like a, a kind of appeal to jim for that because we're constantly seeing him like running away and kind of like running away from the return to normalcy that he could have had. Like when the cops show up, like he could say, Hey, look, I'm not the person, but he just like takes their gun. And then like, we don't see the end of the movie, but he could have just driven back home with Jeffrey DeMunn and that's it. And that's reaching the end of your destination, but you have not changed because everything has gone back to normal. And if I look at like a final girl, like the dropping the knife moment, that's what reverts her back to this female trope. And I wonder if he's just kind of realizing, I don't want that. I want, I love, I like this chaos. I love like if 
like the system and reaching the destination is the patriarchy. I like living outside of that. And I like being in control of my own destiny rather than constantly being running from it and being afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if we know enough about his destination. And I think it's so ambiguous as to what the actual, like we are each are going to have their, our own readings of it. So I don't know if I necessarily want to say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it does feel like he is like his success is, still on the road like that's where he he finally relaxes at the end when he smokes a cigarette and he's still on the road and he's still he's kind of taken on this persona you know that's a that's an open question I think I mean the more I think about it the more I'm like yeah maybe we're we're meant to be left a little worried a little questioning mm-hmm. seeing him kind of like I've just had sex and by that I mean I killed a man and exerted my power and I'm gonna smoke a <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm gonna smoke a cigarette really coolly because this is now what's normal mm-hmm. to me and we're like what's he gonna do next um, right. I'm okay mm-hmm. with that ambiguity, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I am too. Yeah. Like, do we think he just takes another car next week? You know, <laughs> I think, I think that I, I agree that I like the ambiguity of it. I always love an ambiguous ending rather than one that, you know, ties it all to up in a bow. And I, and I do feel like he has inherited the mantle of the Hitcher to some extent, whether you want to see it as he's literally going to go terrorize people or he is now, um, something that exists outside of the framework of traditional systems mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there but that's the point i think right <laughs> yeah. like, i need a cigarette after, after I, all know. I know <laughs> <laughs> well is there any or do we have any final thoughts about this before we kind of move on i hope the gentleman whose car that was I hope he had insurance on it <laughs> because i feel really bad for the dude who just wanted his car driven from point A to point mm-hmm. B. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, some guy you know, in San Diego, like, what the hell? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> no, I, I really enjoyed this discussion. I definitely got a lot mm-hmm. from it, which is really cool. It's like, it's really fun to kind of interrogate movies in this way where you're like, yeah, I don't really see that much in it. And to hear this perspective is like, that's actually really mm-hmm. cool. So, yeah. I could give my, um, my closing argument, basically, because I do think there's something. Please there's something that crops up in the face of the thesis about Jim being a final girl, which is, so if I have a beef with that read, it's that power is, is universally gendered, pretty male, pretty phallic. Mm -hmm. The one who wields the gun, who penetrates gendered male has the power. The one who cries and cowers is gendered female and doesn't. Um, And that's essentialist, right? That the final girl itself is still a restrictive archetype in this way, that Mm -hmm. that basically you have to man up to win, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't don't think this movie rises up out of that. Like, I don't think we can expect it to, even though it plays with it more. Um, And I, I, you know, I'm fine with that. I I like how it flexes within the archetype, um, especially as someone who's seen the traditional version over and over. Um, Mm -hmm. But my... I guess my my twist or my counter argument to that essentialism and that I think this movie supports is that if anyone can man up to win, if anyone can portray abject fear and cry and sob, if anyone can do either regardless of their gender, then actually we are loosening essentialist connections and making them outdated and making them an aesthetic with which we can play in so many ways. And anyone should be able to do whatever they want, right? If, if they want to be the most essentialist sobbing pretty princess or, or gun-toting hitchhiking murderer, then I want a world where that's just as okay as moving freely between the two. Um, mm-hmm. And so the more we do to destabilize and decouple expectations around gender, even within tropes, to me is like a lovely step forward to a world in which aesthetic and play 
does become prioritized over rigid prescriptions. That's my mm. that's my closing argument. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I fucking love it. I do too. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for it. And that's when I look at this film and I think, is this a feminist film? I think, I don't know if I would say, yeah, feminism, but like, I think there's a lot of feminist read of these characters because that's really what I think I think of when I think about feminism is just looking at everyone as complete people that are able to kind of exist within their own structure rather than the structure that is imposed upon them. And I I love that we see that Jim gets to be a male character in whatever way suits the situation that he's in. And there's such a range in that, that I really dig. And the remake is I I've, got a lot of rage towards that movie because <laughs> well for a lot of reasons I saw it on a really bad day too so it's got it got a negative connotation with me but they re- reversed the roles yeah. so Nash Ugh. is male and yeah and it's just fascinating because it takes all of the interest out of the movie like it's so it's the thing it's most egregious because it's boring you know it's like oh this is we've seen this movie a million times and that's what makes this version interesting is we haven't seen this a million times we've seen a form of it but here's a way that it can be different and like you were saying if it can be different in this way we can all be different in this way good movie i like it <laughs> i liked it yes <laughs> Yeah, I do wonder, though, the whole time I was thinking, what if he just didn't pull over? What if he just didn't pull over? Would he have just lived the rest of his life like as just kind of kind of cute Jim, yeah. you know? He would always sense he was missing something and have dreams about coins on his eyes. That's true. Or he would have fallen That's asleep true. and gotten hit by a truck. Or just died. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. He just would have just died. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that he's trying to prevent this terrible tragedy from happening and then like awakens this nightmare. So as we're wrapping up, let's take a moment to briefly mention any other mental health topics we see represented here. We're not going to go too deeply um, because we might come back to them at some point, but we just like to mention things when we see them. And Mel, I know you had mentioned codependency that you see in this. That was not something that jumped out at me, but I'm interested to hear. Are you talking about between Jim and Ryder? Yeah, I just think the way in which Ryder very purposefully isolates Jim, sort of steering Mm. him through this new social world um, that that he's not accustomed to, making people disbelieve him, and and also just making sure that he is the only one that gets access to Jim, um, cutting mm. cutting Nash literally out of his life, um, prioritizing their connection above all else, above Jim's wants and needs, um, and making it seem like the north star of of how someone should function to be this other person. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it's clearly an abusive. <laughs> an abusive relationship yes it, it, mm-hmm. it's I, I'm very interested in why I enjoy these kind of codependent and abusive relationships so much because this is what you just described is what reminds me so much of the Hannibal and Will dynamic totally. in the Hannibal TV series I mean you couldn't you couldn't you, just that the, the description between what Hannibal does to Will and what and they look the same it's like a, almost identical it's like a mocky I know I, brunette and- <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a, a doe-eyed brunette and a Teutonic and a Teutonic psycho. Uh, yeah, and it's just and it's and like I'm like, why do I find that so compelling? Like, because I want to see more of it and I get drawn into it. And I'm like, what does that say about me and my what do I, what what issues do I need to have yet have not yet processed? But I I find it a very very compelling dynamic because it's re, it's as repellent as it is seductive, mm-hmm. and I find that that and that tension works really well in a horror horror genre. Um, or horror 
horror adjacent genre. It's just mm, like a ripe peach on a hot summer's day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think we'll, we're going to come back to codependency because I have a lot of as a, a self-identified recovering codependent, like I, it kind of surprises me that I didn't see that as I was watching it. But yeah, well, I think we'll probably have that theme coming up sometime in the future. And now it's time for our uplifting moment. This year totally blows, and it's important <laughs> to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Uh, there's really no one right way to take care of ourselves. I'm now flashing back to all of the erotic things we've been talking about. It's like, well, that phrase, take care of ourselves, maybe is a little too apt in this moment. Um, <laughs> Listen, that is an essential self-care strategy. That's true. Yeah, we're <laughs> once again all smashing our horny buttons, you know, except for maybe mm. Mike. I'm not sure, right? right. <laughs> Depends, you know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll take it back. <laughs> Anyways, there's really no one. I can't say it now. Um... <laughs> don't don't put me in your little box, okay? You know, so I mean, to turn a or friend. for the right for the right price. <laughs> Please and, please and thank oh, that's you. That's another movie. <laughs> oh, um, so since there's lots of there's lots of different ways to take care of ourselves is what I wrote. Which <laughs> but this is a time where we kind of share the different things that are helping us get through these hard times and like the things that are making us feel better or that help to stabilize us when the world just feels like it's kind of spinning, which it kind of has for me in the past. Um and we also like to talk about our self-care because I think it's really important to continually like evaluate what is making us feel better. And it's really easy to get stuck in a self-care rut too and you just kind of are going through the motions and then if the stress is not being relieved because th that's not the self-care you needed anymore. Um, so let's go around and share any grounding and coping strategies or any self-care that we've been doing recently. And... I will start with my favorite thing to do on Friday nights now, which is go to the grocery store wearing a mask and being socially distant and getting click list for the majority of my stuff. But I always forget something so that I can go in the store and just be away, be out of my house. It's the only time I've been leaving my house. It's the only time that I don't have a child that I'm responsible for. So I go in and I forget, I get my thing that I forgot. And I also get the Reese's Big Cups <laughs> and a yes. Mango Madness Snapple. Yes. And I just go and I sit in my car for like 20 minutes and I just eat those Reese's Cups. And it's fantastic. And it probably sounds like really sad. And in any other year, I'd be like, that's, that's a really sad thing to do on a Friday night. But <laughs> it's like the thing that I look forward to the most now. And it just, just being by myself Doesn't not being responsible for anyone it sounds decadent it's, mm -hmm. I know it's like ah uh, and I've been like eating them slowly mm -hmm. and then I just mm -hmm. and then I drive around the block once when I go home too because I just like nobody needs me in this moment and I can just kind of be wherever I want and I think there's a comfort for me in driving and being in my car which is interesting that we're talking about it in this movie just because I'm I'm not attached and I can kind of just exist without having to fit into a structure I think I have this movie on my brain now, but yeah, so that's my, that's one of my self-care things right now that's really, I really look forward to, so does anyone else have anything they want to share? Um, I have 
As per usual, as is a theme with this year, struggling with self-care, I did just force myself to buy, I bought some cute little notebooks just because I like, I was running out of space in my existing notebooks and I bought um, these little brown cardboard covered grid patterned little ones just to start. <sighs> it's so lame, guys. It's just so fucking lame. But Don't I, yuck your own yums. <laughs> That's true. We both well, did especially. <laughs> I, I yuck your own yums is also a disgusting phrase, <laughs> but I point point taken. It's I'm I am gonna try to start like gratitude journaling, mm, like mm-hmm. write down like I think I think Mike you even said so. I think it's like you say it with such enthusiasm. It, it is the, gratitude. The look, and I know we're not a we're not a video podcast, <sighs> but like you just have that like hey. The look on your face was like, spell this jar. And I'm going to do this. Right just... basically. <laughs> I, I, it just, for some reason, it rubs me the wrong way. And it's, it's not that I am against the idea of gratitude or that I don't consider myself immensely lucky. It's just so off brand. <laughs> I, you know, but I, I am going to force myself to do it because I've, I've taken the time to really appreciate this year, my friendships, my connections, you know, I think I tend to see myself in the narrative I tell myself is that I'm really isolated and alone. And even though that is physically true right now, I don't think it needs to be emotionally true because I have so many wonderful people in my life. A bunch of like, like three of my friends are helping me. Re- one of one of them was upgrading his gaming PC. So they're helping me refurbish his old gaming PC and basically build me a new gaming PC. And it's going to be so much cheaper than anything I could have imagined trying to do on my own. Mm -hmm. And like, who the fuck does that for someone for no reason? Mm -hmm. You know, like that's like, my friends are so fucking amazing. And like, I'm just trying to like really sink in and appreciate those little moments. And I'm just going to force myself to fucking do it. Even though it feels lame to me, I'm going to write it all in a goddamn journal. Okay. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) I get that it doesn't feel very goth. But. Yeah, it doesn't. But maybe I'll make it a goth, uh, you know, gratitude journal. It'll it'll be a no. I can't. I'm not. I'm done. My puns are dry. My my well of puns have run dry for the night. So you can phrase it gothly. You know, like do you follow Doth yeah. on Twitter? Like it's like. Oh yeah, yes I do. You know, you're an adult. Doth. You can die in a creepy mansion if you want to. Which exactly, I really appreciate. Exactly. I have a bunch of. Um, strategies that I'm, that I'm trying right now i have a lot of anxiety around to-do lists and especially household chores um so one thing that has been very helpful is this app called habitica which it really plays into my need to gamify certain things um so you plug you can enter to-dos or even habits or daily things that you need to do and when you check them off you get like little rewards you get like experience and your little character like levels up you can get little pets like little birds or monsters that stand next to your Hello. avatar um and you can join a party with other people so i'm trying to hold myself more accountable with writing stuff with a couple writing friends and so that has been really really helpful just being able to also detach an incomplete household task from any kind of moral value like making sure that Mm. i realize that it is a morally neutral thing to like not do the (laughs) dishes one night or um you know just make sure that my sink looks acceptable. Like, who's going to see it? And right. it's just a morally neutral thing. It says nothing about me. It says nothing about me as a person. God, I talk about that in therapy so much. I love that you're saying that. <laughs> yes. Like, same. You're same. right. <laughs> it doesn't. It really, it like seriously yeah. does not. Um, And I have mm. a very, a very, 
effective visual, like a grounding exercise that I do um, when I instinctively want to shame myself for something that's incomplete or a lack of productivity or anything that I feel shameful about. And it is to envision like a cauldron of shit and like that's everything's in there, you know, like the pandemic got poured in there. Everything that I'm stressed about is in there. I'm teaching, I'm applying to fellowships. I have another job, like don't feel very smart or whatever that day. And like the cauldron is just like almost overflowing and I'm standing there and I'm holding a bottle with a skull and crossbones on it. And the bottle is labeled shame. And I'm like, why would I pour this in there? (laughs) That's going to be terrible. Like, why would I do this? Mm. (laughs) Why why add it? Like, why would I Mm. add shame to this? And then I, I, I and then I shelf it. (laughs) instead um, and try not and try to be a non-shame witch i guess <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that really appeals to my witch mm-hmm, love mm-hmm. <laughs> like thinking about my life yeah. as a cauldron Ooh. yeah i mean especially as someone who struggles with shaming myself for every goddamn thing including saying that i'm starting a gratitude <laughs> journal um you know yeah i like i dig it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah mike would you have anything you want to share yeah, a couple things. So one thing I'm trying to do more, because like one of the things I've struggled with, especially this year, is like, does it even matter? You know, like it feels like a lot of the days we go in, like it's the same thing over and over again, fighting the same struggles. I know one of the things I've been tasked with in my job at school isn't something that's really supposed to be part of the job, where it is a lot of calls home, and a lot of video conferences with kids and parents about like, why aren't you in your online class? And why haven't these assignments been done? Which is really like as a social emotional counselor is, I really don't feel like that is what the job is, but Hey, we're all kind of like pitching in right now. And after like 30 of those calls, when like you make a game plan and then you like put it in place and you try to implement it and then nothing gets done. Um, I don't know how teachers are doing it right now. Like I can only imagine the frustration of trying to teach completely remote and have like at least one third of the kids just Mm -hmm. be like completely checked out. So a lot of days you go in, you're like, does what I do really matter at this point? Or if I just stop showing up tomorrow, would it pretty much be the same thing? And one of the things I'm trying to do is like, okay, what did I do today? Whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's in the community, like what mattered? So I know like today, like today I know that I helped like literally 13 families get a Thanksgiving meal. Well, they'll have like a turkey and groceries delivered to them that they wouldn't Mm -hmm. have had otherwise. So I can look at that and be like, great. You know, like that's, I have like a, barrel full of donations of like clothing and coats and stuff coming in that I've been able to call from different parts. I'm like, okay, so I made a difference today in at least 13 families and that's Mm. not a bad way to spend your day. And I kind of need that reminder. Otherwise, like I get Mm -hmm. a little lost in the weeds. So that kind of reminder that we give ourselves, like we are impacting people. And sometimes it's a really small thing. Sometimes it's just like, you're out and about and you pay for the person's coffee behind you or you give someone uh, a little compliment that kind of brightens their day up a little bit or just check in with someone that you haven't talked to in a while just to make sure they're okay. 
Uh, it can be like really little things too. Just one thing to say like, mm-hmm. all right, we made a difference today. The other thing, and I think I've said this before, is like mm-hmm. having things to look forward to. So this comes out after Thanksgiving, but next week is our little Thanksgiving break where we get Wednesday through Sunday off and we're I'm working remotely Tuesday. <laughs> there may not be a lot of work done that day. Mm-hmm. Some calls might fall through and to my fellow teach you know to my teachers that I work with that are hearing this like <laughs> sorry um I'll I'll do my best to answer those my internet wasn't down that day but I know like Wednesday I'm like <laughs> it's Adam Sandler mm. movie marathon day like I just need I just need mm-hmm. a healthy dose of stupidity to get me through the day you know I need Billy Madison hallucinating a giant penguin and looking at like shaved grannies basically to get me through the day. And then I know like Friday is like every day, every day after mm. Thanksgiving, I watch Goodfellas. That is my after Thanksgiving traditional movie for some reason. I can't wait mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. just watch it again. So just having those things to look for. And I was telling a student today when we were checking in, I'm like, what are you doing for the holidays? Like, you know, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not looking forward to it because I'm not doing anything. I'm like, son, (laughs) let me tell you something. When you get older, right? When you get older and you can be like, what do you have to do today? And it's like, absolutely nothing. You are going to absolutely (laughs) cherish those days that there's like zero on the agenda. I can't tell you how jacked you are going to be. I know. (laughs) Yeah. I cannot tell you. This is the going to be the greatest day of your life. And they life just stare at you and are like, like what happens? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're like, like repeated, <laughs> repeated failure, son. Yeah. Repeated. Incredible disappointment. So. Yeah. My friend has a nine yes. month old and she's like, I just can't get her to go to sleep. It's like, doesn't she understand that sleep is the greatest thing in the world? And we all want to be asleep <laughs> right mm-hmm. now. And you can be asleep right now yes. and you're choosing not to be. And I don't understand. But yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so we want this to be a conversation and we really want to hear what you think. We have a homework question that I'll tell you in just a minute um, if you can handle the suspense. But um, you can also share your thoughts on the hitcher or anything we've said in this episode. And I really because we talked a lot a lot about like a lot of thought provoking things in this episode, which was fascinating. And I want to hear what you think about that. So let us know. Please feel free to disagree with any with anything. Oh yeah. Well, and I, like kind of like we said, like the, there's a lot of ambiguity mm-hmm. in this, and I think there's a lot of room for interpretation. So we want to hear what your interpretation interpretation. We want to hear your interpretation of this. Um, and you can also share any grounding or self care. Basically, we just want to hear from mm-hmm. you. We want to hear what you think. Um, and our homework question for this week is: If you could take a road trip anywhere in the world, where would you go? What would you see along the way? That's just a little ad lib, but we hope that if you go, there's not a murderous maniac that's, or, you know, if there is that you're kind of into it too. So yeah. You know. Yeah. That it's like something you might be you're craving. Like, spit on my face. Life. I don't right. know. Try it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Um, Hopefully in, po- in post COVID times. Oh yeah. Please exactly. Don't, please yes. don't be doing <laughs> Right. No, 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 no. Do not. Um, fun fact. If you spit while wearing a mask, it just gets inside your mask and then more on your that face. That is a fun so, fact. You know. mm. So if you're also into that, go ahead. Exactly. That's your I don't want to spit shame. <laughs> <laughs> right. Look, 
this is the year to let all your weird shit fly. That's right? true. No, <laughs> it no doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, no rules, no more. I mean, you can either <laughs> throw that mask away or just put it in the washing machine. That's good. No one will ever know. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's next for us? Uh, we are continuing our theme of killer kids, and I think our second movie on this is going to be a little bit lighter than the first one. Um, although still pretty fucked up. <laughs> kind of has to be. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. After we need to talk about Kevin. Ah, this one at least has Christmas lights in it, right? Mm-hmm. Although it's still it's still a pretty fucked up movie and disturbs me in a lot of ways. But we're going to talk about that because we are watching Better Watch Out just in time for the holidays. I'm really excited to revisit this and a little nervous to revisit it too because, like I said, it really disturbs me. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm very intrigued. Oh, yeah. oh it's to, so much oh, fun. Dig to it is. Dig Have you seen it, no. Mel? I don't even know what it's about, but I imagine there's killer it's, children. It is. There, well... Imagine just Ferris Bueller taken to his murderous nth degree. That sounds great. Um, or Kevin the McAllister. The natural conclusion yeah. of Ferris Bueller. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, God, I fucking love this movie so It's much. good. The stuff that disturbs me is me-specific disturbing, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah. Which we'll talk about. So, yeah. So, better watch. Better watch out. <laughs> because we're going to talk about it. Uh, we need to talk about it. So we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. There are lots of other fantastic pods on the network with us, including Halloweenies and the Losers Club. Um, I think the Opus just launched a new season, and there's the new Going There with Dr. Mike, which is all about mental health and creating music and the creative process. You can find those and lots of other awesome podcasts and content and articles at consequenceofsound.com. And Mel, what do you have going on or what would you like to plug or where can we find you? Well, you can you can find me uh, just kind of walking around like <laughs> just, just being a real nomadic, nomadic <laughs> presence on Twitter. Um, all of my handles, if you're looking for me anywhere, it's going to the handle is going to be at Mel Castle and it's M-E-L-K-A-S-S-E-L. Um, so that's Twitter and Instagram, and my website is melcastle.com. If you go there, you can read whatever short stories I have online that are linked, um, which would be great. I would love if you read my shit. Um, I'm working on a short story <laughs> collection. Probably won't be out for a while yet, but just keep just keep an eye out in the years to come. Oh, cool. um, and <laughs> listen to the Losers Club. I'm on it. I'm on it very occasionally, but when I am, it's always a hoot and a half. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> Uh, Mike, what about you? So aside from psychoanalysis, I am the co-host of The Pod and the Pendulum. Jerry and I are quickly approaching 100 episodes. We are, by the time this comes out, I believe we'll be kind of wrapping up Urban Legend. I'm really excited because we're going to take next week to start planning 2021. And I started looking at all of the franchises we haven't covered, like we haven't done Psycho. We haven't done Jaws. We haven't done Final Destination. And I just started to list out all of these things. And what was really cool is a bunch of our listeners are like, well, what about this one? So I forgot, like, the Living Dead series from Romero. I'm like, whoops, that's kind of a big one. So I'm hoping that we can alternate this year between um, ones that'll take, like, a lot of research versus ones that are kind of, like, very light and fluffy. It looks like it's going to be like another really big year. We're going to be adding some different sorts of content to what we do. So you can find the pod and the pendulum. Oh, and we have guests every week. So what's really neat is like the 
diversity of the guests that we're bringing in and the perspectives that we're bringing in and people that are now like, yo, have me on your show. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm like, sure, why not? You know, we will pretty much have just about anybody on. Find us anywhere you get your podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple. Uh, Yeah, the pot and the pendulum. Well, Laura, what about you? Where can we find you? Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter, at Underalls, (laughs) U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, like the pair of grimy boxer shorts that you've been wearing for this entire road trip. And then you have to then you have to sweat into because a, a murderous hitchhiker tries to kill you, and then you get to shower at a road stop motel, and then put those same mm. nasty ass boxer shorts back on. That's my Twitter handle: U N D You find me making jokes pretty much exactly like that on there. Oh, God, uh, and you can find me on Instagram at Instaglum. Instagram, but with a mood disorder. I've used that one before. I just I use up all my creative energy on these underalls uh, <laughs> analogies. Uh, and uh, you can. I'm sometimes on Losers Club, sometimes on Halloweenies. Otherwise, I'm trapped in this room with my dog, and I can't leave. Dave, <laughs> Dave. Oh. He's actually sleeping on the couch in the next room. He he pretty much just. He's such a good boy when I do these podcasts. He just he knows when I'm in here and I got the headphones on. He just goes to sleep and it's amazing that's such a good dog (laughs) well you can find me on all the socials at jen with two n's um you can find me here you can find me on the losers club i just um finished the second part of our green mile coverage which was it was a lot it was a lot of unpacking to do but i i think they're two really good episodes and i'm excited to see what everyone thinks about them and then um the stand is coming up so i'm hoping that i get to talk about that i know so lots of fun stuff coming up there and Lots of fun stuff coming up here, and I've been extra weird on Twitter recently because <laughs> I kind of don't care anymore, and, you know, I, I find these spurts where I just, I can't believe how funny I am, and I need the rest of the world to know how funny I am mm-hmm. in tweet form, and so that's like, that's <laughs> morning time now for me, so, yeah, find me That's there. what Twitter is for, ideally. I mean, it unless is. you're using it to be some kind of crank or, or right. you know, do- dox people, ideally, you should just be using it to make. Yeah, to prove to the world how funny you are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I created an alt account so I could be cranky, and I have been too afraid to use it because I'm afraid it's going to be traced back to me. (laughs) So, you know, stay tuned. If you see a mysterious cranky lurker around, it might just be me. Um, Anyways, so that is our episode on The Hitcher. Thank you so much for joining us, Mel, and for choosing this movie. I think this was a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you guys for watching it. I love the opportunity to yell about it with other people. (laughs) Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Well, uh, I wrote that looks like the gas tank is getting kind of low. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I got a hang room for some French fries. Woo-hoo! <laughs> I added in the punch ups. Um, so <laughs> I like this. <laughs> um, I'm learning. Haha. <laughs> um, so we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And we're all out of bubble gum. I don't want to toot our horn. We did it. Bye.
Consequence Podcast Network.